Welcome back uh, to uh, Centerpoint, and uh, we are in the middle of uh, a season uh, in which we are considering together uh, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and uh, this fall uh, we are looking at the person uh, of Christ, and uh, in the spring uh, we'll, we'll be looking at the work uh, of Christ. And tonight... Uh, and this is, uh, this is lecture number 37. For those of you who are here from the very beginning, uh, tonight we want to talk about the sinlessness of Christ. And um, as, as we were singing and uh, thinking about, uh, about trusting in, in Jesus, um, we're asking some... Actually, the questions we're asking are are quite simple questions. The questions we're asking are questions that occur to most of us on a fairly obvious level. Uh, The answers are not obvious. Uh, The answers are sometimes difficult and the answers sometimes are along the line of I don't know. But I think it's 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 okay to ask some of these questions. God made us after his image. And part of that image is that we are explorers. Uh, we were meant to explore. We were meant to go beyond the boundary of the garden. Uh, and to ask what's on the other side. What's beyond the four rivers uh, in the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis. And the Bible presents to us on on the surface a a fairly simple, understandable series of truths that Jesus is God. That's a stupendous truth, but it's it's a truth that's relatively easy to understand. He he is God, but he is also man. He has a human body, a human mind, a human psychology. A human will, human affections. So how can both of those things be true at the same time? That's what we've been exploring. And it took the early church the best part of 400 years of discussion and debate and argument and lots of heresies. And councils came together to affirm that Jesus is two natures but one person, that the two natures of Jesus, the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus, find their unity not by some form of chemical amalgam of the two natures, not by infusing of the two natures, but if I can put it in, in, in the most simple language that I know, there's only one he. There's only one him. He is divine. He is human. He is omnipresent. He is located in one zip code. Both of those things are true at the same time. And tonight, we want to look at the sinlessness of Christ. And from one point of view, the the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ is, is a relatively simple thing to understand. He didn't sin. That's it period, let's go home, let's go to the prayer meeting, we're we're done. 
Except that theologians begin to ask, and, and you do, when you read the Bible, you, you, you find yourself asking certain questions. And one of the questions that, that you get, that you find yourself asking is, could he have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? And, and woe betide you if you get that question wrong. Because there are all kinds of implications. So let's... Um, I'm, I'm going to begin where, where we'll be gliding along. Beautiful day, we're floating on a boat somewhere. And then all of a sudden we're going to nosedive. And, and all of a sudden you'll find yourself maybe a little at sea. Uh, we need to distinguish between two words. And the two words are impeccable and sinless. Now, sinless we all understand. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't commit any sin. So let's, let's define sin. And there are lots of ways of defining sin. But let's define sin the way the Shorter Catechism defines sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's, that's not the only way to define sin in the Bible, but, but that's one way of defining sin. It's a very Johannine way of defining sin. Sin is to break the law. Jesus is sinless, meaning he never broke the law. He kept the law perfectly. Impeccable means something else. Now we might in day-to-day -day language and in, in a text message, we might use the word impeccable and sinless as synonyms, but, but actually they're, they're not. They, they mean quite different things. Impeccable has to do with the question, could he have sinned? That's a different thing. Impeccable means, well, it means he cannot sin. It's not that he didn't sin, it means that he cannot. It is impossible for him, Peccatus, it's, it's impossible for him to sin. The church began talking about the sinlessness of Jesus and the, and the importance of that. And, and you understand why that is important. Because unless Jesus is sinless, he can't be my savior. He, he has to be, I'm, I'm glad you're affirming this. Because it's really important. And unless Jesus obeys the law, he cannot be my substitute. He can't be, he can't be the second Adam. So let's begin there. And, and, and this is relatively simple. I mean, simple to understand. Let's look at some scriptures together. That's always a good place to start. Uh, let's look at some very familiar scriptures, and there'll be a few more as, as we go on, but let's begin in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a, a very well-known scripture. For our sake, he, that is God the Father, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, who knew no sin. Sin wasn't a part of his being. 1 John 3, 5. He appeared in order to take away sins and... Oh, forgive the typo. And it's been a day of typos. 
Um, he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. That's very clear, isn't it? In him, in Jesus, there is no sin. There's no want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God in him. No one can point the finger at Jesus and say, Aha! There's a sin, there's a fault, there's a, there's a blemish, there's a, there's a deviation from the path. There's a transgression of the law. He is without sin. He's perfect. It's a, um, it's a statement about the holiness of Jesus. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once. It's a day of typos. It's one of those days. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The righteous. He was righteous. In the eyes of God, he was righteous. He was the righteous one. It's a statement about his perfection. And Hebrews 4.15, and, and we'll come back to this text again, but this is a text that we, we all know and love, and uh, I find myself uh, repeating this text to myself um, on a frequent basis. We do not have an high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, Yet without sin. Now, it's, it's the yet without sin part that I want to focus on. We're going we're gonna to come back to the issue of his temptability in, in, a, in a few moments. But at the minute, I'm, I'm focusing on without sin. You uh, understand that there hasn't been a single human being in the history of the universe of whom that could be said except for Jesus. Not a single individual from the very beginning of this universe of whom that could be said except Jesus. He is without sin. What an extraordinary statement that is. He is without sin. Now what do we mean when we speak of the sinlessness of Jesus? What do we mean by that? Well, let's try and, let's try and uh, elaborate a little. He did not commit, nor, therefore, was he guilty of actual sin. Let's start there. Right? He didn't commit any actual sins. And we all understand that. I mean, conceptually, that's not a difficult thing to understand. Jesus never broke the law. He never failed to comply with any demand that was placed upon him. He lived a perfect life. Absolutely, morally perfect life. 
That's, um, that's truly awesome. And, and that's an appropriate place to use the word awesome. <laughs> to be in the presence. You know, I've been in the presence of people that I regard as you know, godly people. And, and, and I, I felt a little intimidated by their godliness. I've, I think of an elder from a former church. I can hear him praying in my head. And uh, his, his prayers were so godly. He was such a humble man, but, but when he spoke, and when he spoke to his heavenly father, it was like, it was like eavesdropping on a private conversation. And, I, and I, felt, I felt unholy as he spoke. Now, he'd been horrified if I'd actually said that to him, because that wasn't his intention. But he, he was a godly man, tremendously godly, but he was a sinner. He was a sinner. But Jesus was... Without sin. He never committed any actual sin. Now, you'll feel the boat going down a little now because we, 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 we have to say something else. He, he wasn't held liable for original sin. Now, it is our understanding of uh, biblical teaching that every human being, in fact, every infant born into this world, is a son or daughter of Adam, and therefore an inheritor of Adamic guilt. In other words, original sin. I mean, our babies, our children, our grandchildren, they're beautiful. We go all gaga when we see them. They're beautiful, but they're sinners. Now, that's offensive to the world, you understand. That's, that's countercultural, what we're saying. It's, it's, it's why they need to be baptized. Baptism is a, is a sign and seal that the, the person is, is unclean, is unfit for the kingdom of God. And, and it's a picture of the gospel. These, these children are in need of the gospel. Now, Jesus was born... Without original sin. He's the only one who's born into this world without original sin. Without Adamic guilt. Now we've, we've talked about it. won't go down this road again. But we've talked in recent weeks how the virgin birth is an insufficient theological explanation for the, for the non-transference of original sin. Now, Roman Catholics have, have had a heyday here and they've... they've, they've They've taken this notion and, and come up with the Immaculate Conception, which is a doctrine about Mary, not about Jesus, uh, in order to, to ensure that Jesus, being born of Mary and of her substance, as a Westminster Confession says, uh, is free from the taint of Adamic um, sin. But, but the virgin birth is, is an insufficient explanation, theological explanation for that. He still inherits from Mary. So there has to be a, a sovereign act, superintendence, to ensure that he is free from Adamic sin. Now some, some, because of this issue, have gone in the direction, and it started in the 4th century with, uh, with Basil of uh, Caesarea, um, but, but some decided that the way to, to get over this was to suggest that Jesus wasn't 
human in the sense that we are human. But there was something different about him, something different about his body and soul. And, and, and that direction is, is wholly unacceptable. He was like us in every way except for sin. He had a true human body and a true human soul. And we've talked in recent weeks about what that means. A human mind and a human psyche and, a, and, a, and, and human emotions and so on. He was, a, he was a human being. Now some have gone in the direction of suggesting that, that Jesus had a fallen human nature. That, that what, he, what he took was, was Adamic, fallen Adamic Nature and the and the reason why some have gone in this direction is is because unless he is like us this this is the argument unless he's truly like us unless he comes to where we, exactly where we are he can't save us and there's a there's a there's a technical uh, phrase for that which we'll come across in 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 a moment. Um, and uh, on, we don't have page numbers here, but on, on, uh, on your outline you'll see a number of people uh, who affirm um, that Jesus has a fallen human nature. Now, I, I, I think this is wrong, I think this is incorrect, I, I think this is entirely heterodox, but, but, there, but there is a tradition and, the, and that tradition has crossed into our sort of circles, if I can put it that way, um, of those who affirm and that Jesus has a fallen human nature. They're not saying that Jesus is a sinner, that's something else, but that his, that his nature was, was Adamic in, in, in the post-fall sense. And I've, I've given you some quotations here from uh, uh, a contemporary uh, Scottish uh, theologian Tom Torrance, uh, the, the giant figure here in this box is Karl Barth, um, and, and others, uh, Thomas Menandi, uh, C.E.B. Cranfield is a name that's known to some of you, uh, his two-volume commentary on Romans is a, is a very fine commentary on, on Romans, much loved and much praised by uh, Dr. DeWitt, I remember, in class uh, all those years uh, ago. Uh, but uh, but C. B. Cranfield uh, is on is on the side here, and uh, look at his uh, comment. He's commenting on Romans eight three in the likeness of sinful flesh. Uh, do you remember that statement? Paul says that that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And what does he? And the, and the question is, what does he mean? What does Paul mean when he says in the likeness of sinful flesh? And uh, and Cranfield says Paul clearly meant. Well, it's clear to him, that is. Paul clearly meant sinful nature, i.e. fallen human nature. So Jesus, Jesus came in fallen human nature. Now, those words are easy to write in a commentary and then move on, of course. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, well, what exactly does that mean? And what are the implications of that? Now, on the other side, uh, those... Uh, theologians who deny uh, that Jesus took a fallen human nature, and, and this would be, this would be uh, by far and away the majority uh, up, until, up until the 20th century for sure, um, 
Uh, in our own time, uh, I've got a little quotation there from Oliver Crisp, and then uh, Donald MacLeod in his, uh, in his uh, extraordinarily helpful book, The Person uh, of, uh, of Christ. Now, the issue, look at, the, look at point four, uh, the, Roman, the Roman numeral four there, uh, arguments as to why Christ's flesh was fallen include, and let me, let me try and summarize in, in, in fairly simple language what the issue is about. And it's, it's called the, the, the non-assumptio. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. Or what, what the church has sometimes thought uh, by that. By that. And, and it's this. Uh, and, and there was a slogan. And it, and it went around in the early church. And the slogan went like this. The unassumed is the unhealed. Meaning that unless Jesus assumes fallen human nature. He cannot redeem fallen human nature. So that's where we are. We are, we, are in, we are under the umbrella of fallen human nature. So unless Jesus himself becomes fallen human nature, he cannot redeem us. You, you know, once, that's the problem with the slogan. Once you, once you buy the slogan, then, then, then you bought a lot of baggage with it. And you can't get out from this slogan because it sounds right. Let's explore it a little. What do, what do we mean? What, what does the Bible mean by saying that Jesus, um, that Jesus uh, in a real, in a real human body, came into this world, was incarnate, was, was, was formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was, was born, lived in this world. It, it, means, it means he lived in a cursed environment, that's for sure. He lived where sin is. He lived in the midst of sin. Sin was all around him. He, he couldn't he couldn't take a step. He couldn't take a breath without being in the environment that is fallen. The, the world that he came into was, was, was fallen. He experienced all of the consequences of that. Hunger. Thirst. Pain. Not all pain is bad. Not all pain is a result of the fall. You, you understand. If you put your hand in the fire, it hurts. That's a good thing, because you pull your hand out. But not, not all pain is bad. We, we tend to think that all pain is bad, but not all pain is bad. So, some pain is good. But there's a pain that's associated with, with sin. And, 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 and with, the, with the cursed nature of this world. He, he experienced all of that. And he experienced that in a, in a human way, in a, in a physical way, in a bodily way, in a, in a mental way, in a psychological way. Uh, I see Tom Barbarin here. I'm sure his wheels are spinning. Um, that, that, the, that the perfect mind, the perfect psychology of Jesus is in an environment that is fallen and cursed. 
let's go a little further. Christ was, was tempted. We know that because the Bible tells us so. As soon as he was baptized, he was taken into the wilderness. He was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and tempted by the devil. He was tempted. Now, here's a question, and we're underneath the water now. So, but here's the question, and it, and it pops up, and it's a, it's a perfectly obvious question to ask. If, if Jesus was tempted, does it require him to be fallen, to have something called fallen human nature, whatever that means, does it require him to have fallen human nature for him to be temptable? And the answer to that is no. Adam was temptable in the garden, but he, but he wasn't fallen. So, so the fact that Jesus was, was temptable doesn't require, doesn't necessitate that he had some kind of nature that was fallen. All that is necessary for Jesus to have is a perfectly human nature. Think of Jesus like Adam in the Garden of Eden before he had fallen. Now, it gets a little more difficult. Right? We've got Jesus back into the garden. So this, this idea of Jesus having a fallen human nature, we're, we, we're, we don't like that. And I'll tell you why I don't like that in a, in, a, in a moment. But we've got Jesus back into the garden of Eden, like Adam. Now, there's a hard and soft view here. The, 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 the soft view is that Jesus, like Adam, in the Garden of Eden, could have sinned. Right? If you put Jesus back in the Garden, like Adam, but now a second Adam, Adam was capable of sinning. He, he, was, he was in a condition that we call posse, um, uh, it, it's, it's posse non peccare. It's possible for him not to sin. But it's possible for him to sin too. That's what we mean when, when, when we talk about Adam in the Garden of Eden. He's in, he's in a condition of probation. He, he, it could go either way. He could sin or he could not sin. He chose to sin. Now, the, 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 the soft interpretation, and, I, and those are my words... The, the soft interpretation says that it was possible for Jesus to be temptable. It, was, it must mean that it was possible for him to sin. After all, if, he's, if it isn't possible for him to sin, then, then the temptation isn't real. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretend. It's there just to make it look as if it's a temptation, but it never, it's never really a temptation if it's not really possible for him to, to sin. So there are those, and, and, and they're within our camp. Uh, and I've got some names, uh, uh, WGT Shedd, a very fine uh, Calvinistic uh, theologian, much admired by, by uh, f- folks within our own, within our own world, uh, who takes that soft interpretation that it was possible for Jesus to have sinned. And then there's a harder interpretation, and, and I'll tell you up front, that's where I am. There's a, there's a harder interpretation that says, no, it was never possible for Jesus to sin. 
Now, hang in there. What we are talking about here is something that's altogether unique. There, there's, no, there's no model that I can liken this to because there, Jesus is unique. He is two natures in one person. There's only one he. There's only one him. Do you remember the formula that we used um, a couple of weeks ago? And, and you do remember these Latin terms now because, because there is a pop quiz. It's going to come... In a couple of weeks, I've scared a couple of people away, I think, by, by this reference to the pop quiz. But the, the, the so-called communion of attributes, the communicato idiomatum, the, the communion of attributes. And, and, and what that is, is this. Whatever you attribute to either nature, you can attribute to the person. Right? You can't attribute, right? The divine nature is omnipresent. The divine nature is everywhere. The human nature can only be present in one place. You can't attribute the property of the divine nature, the ubiquity of the divine nature, the everywhere present property of the divine nature, you can't attribute that to the human nature. Because then it's not human nature anymore. But you can attribute it to the he. He is omnipresent. He is only present in one place. This is a unique relationship here. There are two natures, but only one person. Right? So the communion of properties, this is the problem with Lutheranism. And don't, don't, don't get bent out of shape. This is not a criticism of everything to do with Luther. I'm going to praise Luther to the hilt on Sunday morning. But Luther did have a problem here. And the problem was that he, in the Lord's Supper, you know, what does is, what is, is mean? This is my body. Hoc est corpus Mayum, you know, hocus pocus and, and, uh, and, and, the, and something changes. Right? That's where hocus pocus comes from. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, uh, it's the Roman liturgy of the Mass and the, and the so-called transubstantiation. Now, Luther denied transubstantiation, but something happened to the, to the, to the bread and, and the property of ubiquity, the property of being everywhere present, is somehow, some way attributable to the human nature of Jesus, so that the, so that the human nature of Jesus is in, with, by, under the bread, no matter where that bread is. That's, that's not so much a problem with the Lord's Supper as a problem with Christology. Now, f- file that, close that door, come back, come back to me. We're asking the question... Was the human nature, the real human nature, the real mind, the real will, the real psychology, the real affections, was the human nature of Jesus capable of sinning? Because however you're going to answer that question, it's going to be true of the hymn. He who is the Son of God, he who is the second person of the Trinity, has two natures. And it's, it, it's just hugely problematic to say of the second person of the Trinity that he is capable of sinning in his human nature. That, that's, that's just hugely pro- problematic. Right? So, so because, because of the way the church 
brought together the, these two truths. He is divine and he is human. And, and he is divine and human in one person, the so-called hypostatic union. Right? Because, because of that truth, if you, if you attribute to the human nature of Jesus an ability to sin, it becomes true of the him. You, you still following? Don't switch off. <laughs> Keep tracking with me. Now, that, that's just hugely, hugely problematic. Now, whether it was last week or the week before, pull out this file that we talked about. What accounts for the uniqueness of Jesus? And the answer that we've given, right, over the last couple of weeks is, is what accounts for the fact that Jesus could perform miracles? What, what accounts for the fact that Jesus had knowledge beyond the scope of ordinary, of ordinary human intelligence? What, what accounts for that? And, and what we said was, it's not his divine nature. It's the Holy Spirit. That he was upheld by the Holy Spirit. He was given information by the Holy Spirit. He was given abilities, miraculous abilities by the Holy Spirit. Like Moses, like Elijah, plus. But it's not, right, the uniqueness of Jesus is not that he's plugging into his, his divine hard drive and, and downloading gigabytes. Now, what that, what that means, right, this is, this is where we ended up a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week? What that means is, how does Jesus, and this was, this was where we ended, I think, how does Jesus, the human Jesus, the, the Jesus that you'd meet uh, in, in, in Jerusalem one day, you know, there's, there's John, there's Peter, there's Andrew, there's, uh, there's uh, uh, Thomas and Thaddeus and so on, and, and oh, there's Jesus. How does he know that he's the son of God? And the answer that I gave is, he has to believe it. But he has to believe it. He's been told that he's the son of God. He was told by Mary. There are certain things that have happened in his life that have, that have, been, that have been confirmatory signs. That's who he is. But he has to believe it because he doesn't look like the Son of God. He doesn't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I feel like the Son of God today. He has to believe it. Now, let's get back to this issue of temptation. I, I, I don't think that Jesus was capable of sinning. But in his human mind... He didn't know that. He, he would certainly know that in his divine mind, but in his human mind, there's, there's no reason to believe that he knew that. He lives in his, in his humanity with limited knowledge. I, I know that's hard to take in, but that's, I mean, this is orthodoxy that I'm giving you here. Because the alternative is Apollinarianism, which is a heresy. 
when Jesus faces a temptation, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to think that Jesus, in his human mind, knows. Oh, I'm going to get out of this. Hey, I'm, the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Everything's going to be fine. Because I've, I've read the book. I've read the last chapter. I've, I've read Matthew and Luke. I've read these temptation narratives. I know how they end. His, his divine mind could have said that. Because it, it knows everything. But his human mind didn't know that. He lives by faith. Behold my servant whom I uphold. So, were the temptations real? Or to him they were. You know, if you look at it, and it's, it's, it's the difference between looking at something, you know, from 36,000 feet, you see it all. You can see the before and you can see the after because that's the event you're looking at. It's like looking at the past. You know, it's like reading about 1517 because you know what happened in 1516 and you know what happens in 1518 because, because you're looking at it from a different perspective. But if you're looking at it from the point of view of the here and now, the existential moment, you don't know what's coming. So... Were these temptations real? As far as Jesus is concerned, they were. To his human mind, they were. To his human affections, they were. We, we do not have an high priest. Right? Hebrews 4.15. We do not have an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But was tempted in... Every point, like as we are. Now, now let's um, let's go to um, let's go to the the section. Um, you know, I should put page numbers in here, but the the bit that says "yet really tempted," and then there's a quotation. It doesn't tell you where it's coming from. Look, this was a this was a busy day. Uh, it comes from Matthew chapter four. Uh, this is the temptation story. It's the section that says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Has everyone got that? Uh, and then there follow the three temptations. Uh, this is Matthew's account. I could have taken Luke's account. I just chose Matthew's att- uh, account. He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he was hungry. Do you know what it's like to fast for 40 days and 40 nights? No, you don't. There was, a, there was a, an, an elder I once knew, he fasted for 30 days. It, it was, uh, he, didn't, he, he drank liquids, he'd be dead if he didn't drink liquids in 30 days, but, but he, he, drank, he drank water, but he was barely able to stand up. He was dysfunctional and disorientated. 40 days, and, and don't, don't say, oh well he's the son of God, you know, 40 days isn't much for the son of God. In his human body to go without food, for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, I get cranky if I miss lunch. <laughs> and if I fast for a day, I, I, I'm, I'm ravenous. I don't want small talk, I want food. <laughs> I don't want green beans, I want, I want meat and potatoes. S- something hearty. 40 days and 40 nights. It, it's underlining 
the, the stress on his body, the stress on his mind, the, the stress, the psychological stress, the emotional stress. You know, when you haven't got food and, 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 uh, and, and people around you are, are doing weird stuff and asking weird questions and, and, and enough already, I'm hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if, actually the Greek is perfectly capable of being rendered since. Let's take it as since. Since you are the Son of God. The, the, the devil isn't, isn't doubting that he's the Son of God. He's affirming it. Okay, you're the Son of God. Look, we're not going to quarrel about this. You're the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. How difficult would it be for the Son of God to turn a few rocks into hot loaves of bread? I mean, it's It's nothing. He, he made the universe, so what's, what's the big deal? It's nothing. But if he were to do that, if he were to imply his son of godness, right? I'm going I'm to imply my, my divine nature to create loaves of bread. It's all over. He, he's no longer my savior. Because he has, he has access to something that I don't have. That no human being has. You, you can't say he's been tempted in every point like as we are yet without sin. Because, because when the moment of temptation comes, he could just plug into his divine nature. The devil knew that. Man. Notice the word. I, I have to meet this as a man. I have to meet this as a human being. I have to perform my role as Messiah, as a human being, as, as, as a man, as Adam. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He had come to be the dependent one. Behold my servant whom I uphold. I must, I must live out my Messiahship as one who is upheld by faith. Trusting in the providence of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. You know, do, do us, I mean, that would be spectacular. Throw yourself down into the Kidron Valley below. Because the world loves that sort of stuff. I mean, the world is a god for temple jumpers. One more spectacular miracle. For what? Right? Not to display his messiahship. Just to display his son of godness. And Jesus says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. Now, some commentators are not that impressed by the devil's uh, offer here. Because, I mean, Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But, but actually, 
Actually, the Bible says, you know, that it talks about principalities and powers, the, the prince and power of the air, the ruler of the, of the darkness of this world. And from Jesus' human mind point of view, not from his divine mind point of view, I mean, who's the devil? But from his human mind point of view, yeah, he is a powerful, powerful being. And the temptation to gain the world without a cross was enormous to him. Right? So, so put the philosophical question, could Jesus have, have, have sinned? And it, it is a kind of philosophical question. And I think we, we, you know, as theologians, we certainly have to ask that question. My answer to it is that no, he could not. But his human mind did not know that. And he meets these... Uh, he meets these temptations. And what the Bible says is that he was tempted in every point. In, in every point. You know, so, so, some people get, get offended. Um, and I, I certainly don't mean to be offensive. Um, you know, the woman, the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, it's a... Uh, it's a, it's a moment of provocation. John sets it up that way. It, it, it's, it's very difficult for us to, to, to conceive of Jesus being tempted sexually. But my dear friends, that's such, a, that's such an extraordinary helpful thing for so many people. Who, who, who live with this temptation every day. To have a savior who's, who can say, I know what that is. I know what the temptation is. And to be able to look Jesus in the eye and, and see one who comes out of it unblemished, spotless. That, that, that I can be forgiven. That you can say to, to somebody who's who's tempted in this way and has failed and failed and failed to be able to say, you know, when you look to Jesus, when you cast yourself on him, here's someone who is absolutely perfect. He's been tempted in every point like as we are. He knows pain and, and the loss of a friend. I've just come an hour ago from visiting one of our members who's just lost a husband and... Uh, to be able to say, we do not have an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He, kn- he knows what it is to lose a best friend. Lazarus was, was, a, was a best friend to Jesus. It was the place he stayed whenever he came down to Jerusalem. The place they, they, you know, they, they would sit, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they would sit in that house and talk to the small hours of the morning. Can you imagine it? You know, over, over a late supper. And to hear that Lazarus is, is dead. And Jesus weeps. He weeps. En- engulfed by the emotion of it. So he's, he's sinless. And unless he's sinless, he can't be my savior. He's absolutely sinless. But he's also, and this is the hard Line. He's also impeccable. 
It's the sinlessness part that ministers to us. The impeccable part answers some theological questions. But the sinlessness part. He was tempted and was victorious. So, the thing that you struggle with. The the pain, the hurt. He's been there. He's walked that way. He's, he's met it. He's encountered it. And emerged victorious. This is absolutely and crucial, of course, in, in uh, Christology. Because it's, it, it's, it's going to set up the whole doctrine of Jesus' work. Because if, if he's not sinless, he can't, his, his work is of no use to me. It's, it's fascinating, it's praiseworthy, but it, he, he can't be my savior. He can't be my substitute. I, I need somebody who has met the test and emerged victorious. And that victory reckoned to my account. And so all, all of this is a piece. Right? It all, eventually it all hangs together. And we've just, we've just narrowed our focus here on the Bible's Uh, astonishing and glorious affirmation that Jesus is um, without sin. Well, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. There's no one like him. But he is both God and man, two natures in one person. We thank you for we thank you for the sinlessness of of Jesus. We we thank you that he is without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, without defilement, without shortcoming. He's the perfect lamb of God who met all kinds of temptations and emerged victorious. So bless us and encourage us in our discipleship this evening, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.